If you guys have a Bible, open with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 25 this morning. Psalm 25. I hope that you guys have been enjoying uh, this series through the Psalms. I know I have. I spend, I spend a lot of time uh, in the Psalms, and I think part of the reason is because it's so helpful for me to, um, to remember who I am and to remember who God is and to remember what this life is really all about. It, it re- reorients me, as we've talked about through this series We've spent almost three months in this book going through individual psalms. Uh, God willing, we'll spend another few weeks there. And, and I hope that this experience has uh, convinced you that, that you are not alone. And that's an important, that's an important truth for us to remember um, throughout our lives, but especially in moments of difficulty, that, that we are not alone. And the psalms remind us that we're not alone. They teach us that we are not alone in our feelings of, of disorientation or our feelings of distress, our feelings of loneliness or anxiety. We're not alone in those places. And the scriptures remind us that. But, and, and they also remind us that we, in spite of all of that, we have good reason to praise. We have good reason to rest or to hope or to have joy because of what scripture teaches us. Even just looking back at a few of the psalms that we've gone through uh, during this series, we, we can identify with, with the psalmist in Psalm 74 when he says, uh, Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt cast off? We can identify with David when he, when he, with the psalmist when he says that. And we can, also, we can also rest in the proclamation that he makes when he says, But, but yet our God is king from of old. He's, he's working salvation in the midst of the earth. We, we can relate to David's cry in Psalm 86 when he says, incline, incline your ear to me, God. I have, I have this ache. I have this cry. I want you to hear me. I want you to listen to me and respond to me. We can relate to that. And we can also know that God is great, that he does wondrous things, that he is not alone, as it says in that same psalm. We know from Psalm 33 that, that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, that he is, he is watching us, he is care for us, and, and, and on those who hope in his steadfast love. And we confess, therefore, that our souls wait for him. You see what the Psalms are doing, right? They're, they're teaching us about our identity. They're, they're teaching us essentially who we are because we, we often forget who we are. We're comforted by David's words in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. We can, we can rejoice confidently with the writer of Psalm 145 when he says the Lord is, he is righteous in all his ways. He is kind in all his works. So in the midst of the struggle, that, that we, we trust that God is kind to us. He's a benevolent creator. We can identify with David's plea in Psalm 22 where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we feel forsaken sometimes. Maybe we even feel forsaken by God. We feel like he's, he's not listening to us. He's not responding to us. He's not dealing with us in the way that we would prefer. And yet hopefully even in the midst of that distress, we can, we can relate to David's words in the very next psalm, in Psalm 23, where he says, even, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even, even in the darkest place, I don't have to be afraid because you're present with me. And, and on and on and on. So, so that's, that's part of the goal for us in this series, is to, is to read these ancient songs, these ancient poems, and re- remind ourselves who we really are. 
and that we're not alone. And, and here in Psalm 25, the psalm that we'll read this morning, I, I can relate to David's emotional distress and, and also with what he's asking of God. Let's, let's read this psalm together, Psalm 25. Another psalm of David. And the psalm begins this way. To you, O Lord, I, I lift up my soul. Oh my God, in, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. But they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. In verse 4, make, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. David is desperate here for guidance. He says, for you are the God of my salvation. And so for you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember your steadfast love. They have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. But according to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way he leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. What a great line. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. And so David says in verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt because it is great. Who, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. There's this promise of a future eternal home. It says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. And so my eyes are ever toward the Lord, David says, for he will pluck my feet out from the net. So turn to me and be gracious to me. I, I, am, I am lonely, I am afflicted. The troubles of my heart, they're enlarged. Bring, bring me out of distress. Consider my affliction. Consider my troubles. For, forgive all of my sin. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Guard my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be put to shame because I take refuge in you. May, my, may integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. And he shifts his focus a bit. He's not, just, he's not just aware of his distress and his need for guidance, but he turns to his people. He turns to his nation, the people of Israel. He says, and redeem Israel, O Lord, out of all his troubles. One of the many things I love about the Psalms um, is that they're just so honest, right? When, when we read these Psalms, we're, we're, we're confronted with, with something just so raw and so vulnerable and so self-aware. And, and, and this is, this particular psalm, this is King David, right? This is the king over Israel. And here's what he's saying about himself. He's, he's worried about being put to shame. He's, he's lost. He needs guidance. He needs mercy. He feels guilty about the sins of his youth. He's, he's looking back at, at when he was younger. So in all likelihood, he's, a, he's an older man at this point. He's looking back over his life, and he's still feeling that heavy hand of the Lord because of the sins of his youth. He feels forgotten, the king. Again, he mentions his guilt, and he asks for pardon. He admits he's, he admits he's lonely. What, what honesty here and transparency 
He says, I'm, he's afflicted, he's brokenhearted, he's distressed. Again, afflicted, again, in trouble, again. At least for the third time throughout the psalm, he acknowledges his sin and he asks for forgiveness. He feels hated, and he is hated. He's got enemies. He's desperate for God to deliver him. He's, he's so honest about his emotions. I think that's hard, that's probably hard for most of us to do. Maybe especially for an ancient king. But he's honest about his emotions. He's honest about his sin. He's vulnerable about his loneliness and about his heartbreak. This is, think about it, this is, the, this is the king. This is the songwriter king, poet, writing this song for his, for his people to sing. And, and to sing for, I mean, we're still singing it. And David's saying, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm lonely, I'm lost, I'm distressed. And in his response to all, all of that, all of those feelings, all of that distress, um, is not, it's not self-pity. His response is prayer. His response is praise even to God. He prays for, for guidance. He's, he's lost under all of these burdens. He's, he's, he's asking essentially, I, want, I don't know where to go, God. I don't know what God's will is for my life to take this step or that step or this opportunity or that opportunity. I'm lost and I need guidance. And this, this is really at the heart of David's request here in verses four and five. You see David saying, make, make me know your ways. Right? Here's, here's all the things that I'm feeling. Here's all the things that I'm struggling with. I, God, I need you to show me and guide me. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach me because you're the God of my salvation. He doesn't, he doesn't look anywhere else. He says, the solution to all of my problems is you. It's interesting here too, and this is important for us, church. It's interesting here too what David is doing. He's connecting his need for guidance with his need for forgiveness. Do you see that there? It's all wrapped up in, into this psalm. Remember the, not the sins of my youth. Remember not my transgressions. Pardon my guilt. Forgive my sin. On and on he goes. And he's asking God for guidance. He's, you know, don't, 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 remember, don't remember all of my sins, right? Don't remember all of my mistakes. But God, remember your mercy. I want you to remember the good things about me, God. But I don't, you, I don't want you to remember those things. Those things I'm ashamed of. That, that word, too, is repeated several times throughout this psalm. In his commentary on, on the Psalms, uh, St. Augustine paraphrases this passage. And he says, he says, please do remember me, Lord, not in the anger for which I am worthy, but in your mercy of which you are worthy. Not because of my goodness, not because of what is due to me, O Lord, but because of your own goodness. Remember me. David sees this connection between wanting to know God's path for his life, wanting to know what direction God is leading him, and also this struggle to, under the burden of his own sin. How, how, many, of us, how many of us connect our, our struggle to know God's will with our own sins and disobedience? We, we want God to guide us. We want God to, to help us in, in this relationship, but, but this relationship is, is fraught with sin. It's, it's, it's distorted by lusts or selfishness. We want God to guide us and help us in our business, and yet we're driven by greed. We want God to guide us and to help us in our schoolwork or in our career, and yet uh, we're lazy or dishonest. We want God to, to, to guide our children, to guide us in parenting our children, to bless them. And yet, we often are blinded by our own anger 
towards them or our impatience with them. There's a connection here between our need for guidance and our need for forgiveness. At another point in the Psalms, in Psalm 40, David, David points this out pretty explicitly. He, he, he writes and he says, he says, my evils have encompassed me. My, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. So, so he's saying here, he's like, all, all, this, all this sin, all this unconfessed sin, all of this struggle, all, of, all this disobedience, I want to go my own way, God. I want to go my own way. I want to set my own path and my agenda, my own priorities. But that I can, I can tell in, in all of that, I feel lost. My sin is blinding me to the vision that you have for me. Our sin blinds us to God's ways. Often what we lack in those moments where we're so desperate to know what's this next step. Should I pursue this relationship or that relationship or this opportunity or that opportunity or this or that or whatever the thing is when we're desperate for guidance in that situation. Often what we need, often what we lack is not only wisdom and direction but repentance and confession. To come clean before God. To acknowledge our sin to him. David is, David is overwhelmed in this. And really, as, as we read the Psalms, David is always overwhelmed, right? He's, he is regularly in trouble. And, and he's, whether he's being pursued by King Saul, he's an outlaw, he's fleeing for his life, or whether he's, he's committing adultery with Bathsheba and, and getting her pregnant or, or, or conspiring to have her husband killed in battle, or dealing with his, his own son, trying to usurp his throne, or, or eventually even losing a child. So, so some, of, some of David's troubles result from, from the sins out there in the world, and, and much of his trouble is a result of the sins of his own heart. And David knows it, and he's acknowledging it here in the psalm. Here he is again, overwhelmed. He's, he's, he's blind. He needs direction from God. But more than that, he knows he needs forgiveness because those are intimately connected. John Piper talks about this, this, the way to get guidance from God, the way to understand his will in your life. And he says the prerequisite for divine guidance is not the quest for messages, but the quest for holiness. It's not just about having the map. It's about knowing the guide. And this is what we see here. This is what, this is what David does. We see it in verse 1. What does he do? The, the psalm begins this way. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I, I, to you, oh my God, and you, I trust. James May uh, was a professor of Hebrew uh, in Old Testament, the Union uh, Presbyterian Seminary. He was a president of the Society of Biblical Literature. He wrote, um, he said, in Israel, lifting up your hands in prayer, lifting up your hands in an outstretched position, position is a gesture of entreaty uh, used in prayer. It's a humble request. When you're raising your hands in prayer to God, you're humbling yourself before you. You're saying, God, I, I need you. I'm desperate for you. I don't, I don't have the solution here. It's got to come from you. And so he says to lift up the soul to God is, is a metaphor for what this gesture means. The metaphor portrays prayer as an act in which individuals hold their, their conscience, their, 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 their identity, their life in hands stretched out to God as a way of saying that their life depends wholly and utterly on him, that they are desperate for the help of God. This is, this is what is happening here. David is saying... I, I give myself to you. 
I'm, I'm lifting up myself into your hands. Utterly and completely, I'm giving myself to you. In, in the Hebrew, that word soul there is the, is the Hebrew word nefesh, which is like, like your core, your identity, your essential self. And so David, David is saying, oh, my, my whole being, I'm lifting up to you. My identity, I'm lifting up to you. My successes, my failures, everything that makes up me, I'm lifting to you. In other words, even more than guidance, David knows he needs a guide. He needs a relationship with his God. Brandy and I went to Israel a few years ago. Um, and, and for most of our trip, we had a guide, uh, a tour guide, to guide us around through all the sites of the Holy Land. And that was, that was a first for us. We'd never been on a trip with a guide. And really, as we were kind of learning that that's how this trip was going to play out, we were a little apprehensive because we weren't that excited about having a guide. Brandy and I have traveled a bunch together and, and individually, and we like, the, we like the independence. We like wandering off the beaten path. We like exploring. And so the idea of a guide felt to us like a real, a real limitation, right, a real restriction on our trip. But we, we were traveling with the group. The group had a guide. So fine, we'll have a guide. And almost immediately when we were on that trip, finally when we, when, we, when we took the flight, when we arrived over there, when we got on the bus, when we were with the guide, almost immediately we realized having a guide was a good move. Having this guide was, was definitely the right move. He was, he was so knowledgeable about the culture and the language and the history and relating to the Bible and, and all the things that were happening in that very complex part of the world. He, he, was, he was thoughtful. He was engaging. He was, uh, he was very aware of the limitations of our group, what our group could do and couldn't do. He was very diverse in terms of age. And he also, he let us wander around. He let us explore. He let us go off the beaten path. And so it was great. It, if you, go to, if you can go to Israel, you should go to Israel. It's, it's one of the most amazing trips that we've been on. So definitely encourage you, go to Israel if you can and get a guide. But there were several times during that trip that I remember thinking where he was leading us, different locations and different sites. They were, they were so anticlimactic when we finally got there. We'd spend all day on some hike and we'd get there and it would just be, uh, it would just be a desert. It would just be another, another bit of sand or another ruins, Right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it would be so, it would even seem inconvenient in some ways until the guide spoke up, right? Until we heard from the guide. He would take us to this, I remember he he took us to this desert valley. It looked like every other desert valley that we'd been to on our trip to Israel. It looked like every other thing. But then he would, he would bend down and he would scoop up a handful of rocks and he would say, this is the valley of Allah. This is where David scooped up his rocks to defeat Goliath and Immediately, oh, this is, a, this is an amazing place. This is a powerful place. This is beautiful now. You can see it. He would, he would take us to this point in the river, and we would stop, and he would, he would show it to us, and it would look like every other point in the river. It would look no different to us than every other thing we'd seen. And he would, he would look over, and he would, he would point west, and he'd say, you see that city over there? That's Jericho. This is, traditionally, this is the point in the river where God's people crossed and made their way into the promised land. He would, take us to, he would take us to this hill in, in northern Israel, and he would sit down, and he would say, this, this, this hill, we're overlooking the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount. So, so much of it was just, was just desert and, and rubble and water and grass without the guide, you see. But with the guide, now everything was infused with meaning. It took the guide to infuse those places with purpose, and, and more than that, infused with beauty. An excitement. At first, what felt to us like an inconvenience or what felt to us like a limitation, we, we quickly realized was really our access into seeing 
what's meaningful and what's beautiful, even in the mundane. It required giving ourselves over to his leadership to actually experience the freedom of being there. The idea here is that are are we trusting the guide? Do we trust that God knows the way in our lives? Do we trust that he's faithful even when it looks mundane? When we look and we we say, I I thought I'd be further along in my life than I am now. I I didn't think I'd be facing this kind of opposition. I, I thought, you know, I put in my dues and yet I'm still here in this place struggling. But do we trust the guide? Do we trust that he he knows the way? Even when we counter obstacles, even when we, and when it feels like we're going the wrong direction. David didn't just ask for a road map. He, he, he lifted his soul to the guide. He says, I'm, I'm, giving my, I'm submitting myself to you on this path. He says, I trust God. I, I, I wait for God. I'm not going to rush ahead. I'm going to wait for him to lead me. I'm going to keep my eyes on him. It says, I take refuge in God. I'm going to hide in God. I'm going to find my safety in him, not in my knowledge because I think I know the right way myself. I'm going to trust him. And he does this for good reason, right? David, David knows the character of God. He says, he says not, none who wait for you are put to shame. That, that God, you are the one who has the right ways and the right path. You're the one who knows the truth. You are the God of my salvation. You, you are the God. You have ancient mercy and ancient steadfast love. You are good and upright. But there's conditions to his guidance, you see. David knows that God is the one who, he's the source of all wisdom and direction and insight, but there's conditions for the guidance that he gives. He says, God instructs who in verse eight? He instructs the sinners. He instructs those who acknowledge their sin. He says, God leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his ways. All of God's paths are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant. Right? It's conditional. David goes to God because he knows God will, he will act according to his character and he will forgive and he will deliver and he will lead him when he fears him, when he acknowledges his sin and he gives himself over to the God. Verse eight, in many ways, sums up the entire psalm. This will be a good verse to highlight if you're one of those people who highlights in their Bible. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. This really sums it all up. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. So we, we are the sinners and we are dealing with and desperate for this good and upright God to give us guidance. Writer, theologian, James Montgomery Boyce, he wrote, these, these two characteristics, they're, they're put together so strikingly in this passage that somehow God is both good and upright. God is is both merciful and holy and just. And and Boyce is saying, how can these things be? He says it's a significant combination because without God's special revelation to us in this area, we can't see how God can be both good and upright at the same time, at least not for us. He's saying essentially we understand how God can be good or merciful and therefore save us from our sins, and this is why we, we go to him. But how can God be just while doing it? You see, there's a tension here. And David's acknowledging it. He's saying, I, I, I need to bring, I, I don't know how to approach you because you're both good and holy. I'm bringing my sin to you. And I'm desperate for your guidance. 
In other words, how, how can God be both, both good to us as sinners and give us, guide, lead us in this path and just and holy according to his perfect nature? Now, Boyce writes, of course, are the only adequate answer, the only solution to this problem of our sin and our need for relationship with God is in the person Jesus. He is the one who satisfies the justice of God by, by bearing our punishments, but his death satisfied the justice of God completely, allowing him to forget our sins and thus reach out and save us. Because when we're dealing with the holy God, if we, the risk is that we would bring our sin to him and acknowledge our sin to him and that he would crush us. Instead, in this passage, we see that God doesn't crush us, but what does he do? He becomes our friend. He becomes our friend. How can we experience that? How can we experience what David calls the, the friendship of God? It's because of Christ's death on the cross that our, our sins are forgiven, that the tension between God's mercy and God's justice, that it's resolved on the cross. And so now when we, when we acknowledge our sin to God, when we come humbly to God, we're greeted not with, with not, we're not greeted with condemnation, we're not crushed under that burden. We are greeted with old mercy and steadfast love. And he brings us in as a friend. Walking through this, this life for anybody, but, but for Christians trying to live this life pleasing to the Lord, this, walking through this is it's difficult and it's complex. It's confusing most of the time. We don't know our way around. We don't always know what's best for us in this situation or that situation. There's rarely a clear and simple path for us. And, and we are not promised a road map, but we are, we are joined by a guide. We are joined by a friend. This is an important lesson to us because many of us spend a great deal of our lives going to God trying to, trying to get instructions. Go this way. Do that, take this opportunity, pursue this. But that's generally not how it works in this life. The way it works is much more of a mystery. It's a, it's a lifelong submission to a guide. It's a desperate seeking, a humbly approaching him and saying, I'm gonna take this step in faith and I'm gonna, take, I'm gonna bring my sins to you. I'm gonna bring my needs to you. I'm gonna bring all my worries to you. Peter Craigie, a New Testament scholar, he says the, the, the right road is not, an always, is not always an easy one on which to walk. It's lined with, just as we read in the Psalms, it's lined with enemies who want nothing more than to shame us. Even the traveler on the road, we are plagued with internal doubts. We're plagued with sin. The essence of the road of the righteous is this, that it is a road too difficult for us to walk without the companion and friendship of God. Too many of us try to go our own ways we want a map, not a guide. David says God instructs those who fear him. God, God will show the way that he has chosen for them to those who fear him. Those who fear the Lord, their soul will abide in well-being. He gives friendship to those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to those who... What does it mean to fear the Lord? That's a, that's a phrase repeated throughout Scripture. One writer put it this way, that it means that we fear to insult his knowledge by presuming to hide our own sin. Fearing the Lord means reverence and humility. It means fearing to dishonor God's name. It means trusting that he is a reliable guide to lasting joy. 
Many of us fear many things more than we fear the Lord. We're worried about disappointing everybody else instead of disappointing the Lord. We're worried about what everyone else will think about us if we take this step or that step rather than fearing the Lord and giving ourselves to him. But for those who fear the Lord, their soul soul shall abide in well-being. They will have the friendship of the Lord. For those who fear the Lord, our our destination is secure. Our, 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 Our path is toward an eternal home with Christ. He is our guide and he is our friend. I, I encourage you this morning, church, look to Jesus. Do, do what David did. Bring, bring your confession to him. Lift your, your life into his hands. Bring your, bring your loneliness to him. Bring your lostness to him. Lift up your soul. He is your king and he is your creator and he is the only true guide that can lead us down this path. And he does it as a friend because he loves us. Let me say a prayer for us. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for Psalm 25. God, we thank you for this book. God, we thank you for David and his honesty, his transparency. God, more than that, we thank you for your friendship. That you've not left us alone on this this road. God, I pray we wouldn't just use you. I pray we would love you and submit to you. God, be with us. I pray that we would be people of your word, that we would be people who are drawn to your text, that we are reminded, God, who we are, whose we are, and what you've called us to. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.